On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. You know recovery is important, but have you actually been promoting pseudoscience? Hey guys, Dave Shell here, and on this episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, I had the extreme pleasure to sit down with Christy Ashwanden, a journalist from 538.com and author of the new book on recovery, Good to Go. We talked about a ton of stuff that will definitely be applicable to your athletes. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dave Shell, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Christy Ashwanden, a journalist and writer for 538.com and author of a recent book, Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Christy, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I am extremely excited to have you here today. Um, as our listeners might be able to tell that my voice is not my normal voice because I am on the edge of death right now. And so I'm excited to hear um, about recovery. And so before we jump into that, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what was some of the motivation for the book? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question. So my background is I was a runner at college, uh, University of Colorado. And um, during my career, my running career there, I got injured. And so while I was redshirting, I learned to cross-country ski. And I also started cycling sort of for rehab because I had a knee injury. So next thing I knew, I was skiing and cycling. So I was on the University of Colorado cycling team. And then after college, I went on to become a pretty serious Nordic ski racer, racing all over the world um, for Team Rosignol. So that's sort of my athletic background. Um, But I would just say there's this common advice that I hear given to, to writers all the time, which is write the book you want to read. And Good to Go is the book I wish I had read back when I was a serious athlete, like maybe even back in college when I was, you know, still early in my career. Um, It's all of the wisdom about recovery that uh, I learned through the School of Hard Knocks, but of course, also a lot of research. I interviewed over 200 and it was like 250 people for this book. I read hundreds, probably more than a thousand research papers looking into it. So it was a pretty deep dive into the scientific literature, but then also supplemented by my own experience as an athlete. And you also have a background background in biology. I do. Yeah, I have a biology degree. I sort of started off as a researcher, thought I was going to be a scientist until I realized that I like talking about science and writing about science more than I actually enjoy doing science. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on is that as a coach, I feel like a lot of there's so much bad information out there. And I feel like a a lot of times talking to athletes, half your job as a coach is helping them to filter the bad information from the good or vice versa. And we recently had Oscar Eukendrup on and did some nutrition myth busting. And I feel like recovery is in kind of that same vein where there's a lot out there and every week there might be something new. Yeah. And so it's so fantastic that you went and kind of did all the work for us right. so that we can benefit <laughs> from your experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I love that analogy because I think recovery is very much like nutrition and that there are a lot of beliefs and the beliefs sort of have gotten way ahead of the science. But there's also sort of this sense, and it's a correct one, that these things are really important. I mean, both nutrition, but also recovery. And here I'll just make the pitch that like 
recovery is the thing that I never managed to get right as an athlete. And looking back on my athletic career, I see that my inability to sort of master recovery was my limiting factor. You know, so you think, oh, my limiting factor was you know, I just wasn't quite fast enough or I couldn't do this. But no, for me, it was that I just never was able to get that recovery right. So every time I was sort of coming into peak fitness, I would get injured, I would get hurt. And I just couldn't reach my, my peak because I was not recovering enough and I was not mastering. And it really is sort of an art of recovery, I would say. And so on the one hand, we really know that recovery is important, but um, we sort of also uh, open ourselves up to scammers and things because we, it, because it's important. We're sort of always hoping that we're going to find this one thing that we can do about it that will be magical. And I think nutrition is very much this way. I mean, we all know that nutrition is an important part of um, athletic performance. Um, but, you know, whether you're eating this fruit or another fruit or a superfood, you know, these things, we tend to sort of also attribute superpowers to them. Uh, right. And I... I think there was somewhere in the book that you talked about that we're very um, susceptible to su- suckers for superfoods. We are, yes, and we are. That definitely resonated with me, and I hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this, but uh, <laughs> my wife, like, I'm always giving her a hard time because whatever you watch a newscast or something, and they talk about dark chocolate or yeah. goji berries or, or whatever it is that week, and then the next week I'll find that type of granola bar in right. my pantry, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so I'm always uh-huh. giving her a hard time, and there's a it's almost like a religion and it, it can is. be very polarizing because it is. it is a belief. It is. And I, I had someone ask me recently which chapter was the hardest and I would just say hands down it was nutrition. That was sort of the bane of my existence for a while. Like, oh, because the problem is everyone has these beliefs and it really is sort of more religion than science. And so it was kind of difficult to sort through. Um, I actually wrote a whole story for 538. I think the title was something like you can't trust what you read about nutrition, but basically looking at the science of nutrition. And here I'm not talking specifically about for athletes, but just in general, like what's a healthy diet? That seems like an easy question, but it doesn't have a simple answer. And we're looking for answers that are telling us like this fruit is better than that fruit or, you know, eating meat is better than not eating meat and things like this. And we don't actually have good evidence on all of this stuff. And it turns out that most of the studies on nutrition um, have some pretty deep methodological flaws. And some of this is inherent in studying the thing. So it's not that researchers are terrible and they're trying to scam people. It's just that it's a really difficult problem. And so like with nutrition, it's really hard to figure out what people are actually eating. And if you want to do a study um, and compare one diet to another, you know, you have this problem of getting people to adhere to that diet, right? right? So, So it's tricky. And I think, you know, the same issues came up with recovery as well. We're looking for the one thing that's going to make an enormous difference, but it turns out that most stuff is pretty good. And so I'll just give you an example. There's been a lot of talk about chocolate milk being this great recovery drink, and it in fact, it is. But there's nothing, you know, it's not necessarily better than or worse than anything else. It has, um, you know, the right sorts of ingredients. It's got some carbs. It's got some protein, you know, in sort of the right amounts. And that's great. But that's not to say that it's better than something else that has similar nutritional value. But people tend to think, okay, we want this one thing and that's the magic. And it's like, this is pretty good. And this other thing's pretty good, too. And there's nothing wrong with drinking chocolate milk as a recovery drink. But to think that that's like superior to some other thing is, you know, problematic. Right. And I I feel like so much of it is driven by marketing. And I think oh, yeah. you touch on that a bit in the book. And it's like, I feel like I can say this as a former triathlete and as a triathlon coach, I feel like triathletes are some of the worst at oh, yeah. <laughs> being very susceptible to marketing. But it's it is one of those things where it's like you almost question it if it's simple. And it's like, right. well, if it's that simple, it can't work. And I right. I think you touch on that a little bit too, which I'll come back to. But 
What did you discover about kind of marketing and recovery? Oh, I mean, I think one of the big things that I got into in the book and as I was researching was just realizing that so much of what is being presented as science is actually marketing and that so often they're using science as a marketing tool instead of a tool for discovery. And so I'll just give you an example. You have something like, I mean, chocolate milk is an example. So someone did a study looking at chocolate milk as a recovery drink. And like I said, it's it's a great recovery drink. No question. That's fine. But what happens is then you have the milk industry going, oh, this is great. Let's, you know, and so now they're, they're funding research on chocolate milk for athletes. And all of a sudden you have all these studies that are being done and designed to sort of like look at the benefits of milk and chocolate milk. And yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with chocolate milk and it's fine, but it, you sort of get into this whole engine of, you know, oh, this is science speaking and this is so great and it's superior to everything else. And it's like, no, yeah, this is pretty good. But you have uh, the scientific aspect of it really just being exploited in order to market the product. As a scientist yourself, what are some of the things a coach could do to kind of weed through that information? Like when they're looking at a study, what are some things to keep in mind to determine whether a study is good or bad? Like yeah. Things along those lines. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's it's actually really tricky. Um, it's really hard to just look at a study and be able to know how solid it is and how believable it is. So a few general principles, though, is I think you need to keep in mind that no single study is going to provide the definitive answer. And so I'd be very hesitant to put all of your belief and all of your, you know, everything into one single study. The other thing is there are all sorts of issues, and this, this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but you have issues of um, while I was reporting the book, I found out talking to researchers that had looked at some of these things that are being touted for recovery. And it turns out, you know, when you do a study, particularly one funded by the industry that's looking at a particular food or a particular whatever it is, um, if that study's positive, then that's great and it gets heralded and you hear about it and it's published in a scientific journal. But what doesn't happen is sometimes the, the study that didn't find that it worked, that doesn't get published. This is called the file drawer problem. It's also called publication bias. So what ends up happening is, so if I told you that there were 10 studies and five of them found that, you know, Gizmo A works really well for recovery and five of them that says Gizmo A, you know, doesn't do anything or is harmful, you would, you would think, well, this probably is sort of not something I want to try. But if all you hear about are the five positive studies, it sounds really good, right? It's like there's five studies and this really works, but you're not seeing the totality of the evidence. And this is a really difficult thing to get around because, you know, it's hard to know about the studies that weren't reported. During your research, was there anything, like what was the thing that surprised you most that you found as you were investigating all these, all these different modalities? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I was surprised to learn about how inflammation is really something that we don't want to get rid of. So when you're training and you know, you're looking for a training effect, inflammation is your friend. The inflammatory process is basically part of your body's healing process. And that process is what gets you faster, stronger, and all of that. And so, you know, when you go in the weight room and lift some heavy weights, um, it's the damage that you're doing and then your body's response to it that makes you stronger. It's not the act of lifting that weight itself. It's your body's response to that. And inflammation is a really important part of this. And so it turns out there's some pretty good evidence now that doing things that reduce inflammation can actually um, reduce your effect from training. And so there are some interesting studies where they like iced one limb and not another, and the ice limb had a lesser response to the training than the other, which is really interesting. That's very interesting. And so yeah. I actually have an entire chapter in the book about icing and cryotherapy and basically all things cold. And it turns out that this stuff, first of all, it isn't 
very helpful, it seems, for reducing soreness and things like this. So when I was a bike racer, we used to do ice baths, like particularly during um, a stage race or something like that. And this was supposed to reduce soreness. And, you know, it will reduce soreness in that moment. You know, at, you know, so here's the process of an ice bath. You get in, it hurts like hell, it hurts like hell. Eventually you get numb. And I've always sort of thought that like the way that it works is it makes you feel so uncomfortable that by the time that uncomfortableness goes away, like everything else feels better. Right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> That's my personal, you know, unproven hypothesis hypothesis. Um, but the evidence now is really showing that it doesn't reduce uh, muscle soreness or anything like that. It does numb things, though. And some people still are feeling as though in things where you're going to perform again in a short period of time, it can be helpful. But in terms of long-term adaptations, so like if you are in the part of the training um, block where you're really just trying to over, you know, get some overcompensation and really get a training effect, you want to avoid icing and cold um, because it could actually reduce your benefit. And in listening to that, I something kind of popped into my head, and I feel like recovery and adaptation might be used kind of synonymously, uh-huh. where they're not the same thing. They're so not. there's all this emphasis on recovering as fast as you can so that yeah. you can get out there and crush another hard yeah. workout the next day. Yeah. And maybe that's not what you're looking for. That's right. And one thing that's really interesting is there are people now that are looking into, this is kind of a newer aspect of things, and it's still kind of developing. But uh, a lot of people are starting to think of recovery as a, something that should be periodized just as training is, so that when you are in preseason training and really sort of trying to build um, endurance block and things like that, that might be a time where you're not trying to optimize, you're not trying to sort of bounce back and be ready so much. You're really trying to optimize that training effect, which is one part of recovery, right? It's one thing that's happening during recovery, but it's not sort of the be all and end all. And like you said, the, you know, at its sort of most basic level, recovery is a return to readiness. You know, and whether or not that includes like some sort of adaptation just depends on the scenario. Talking about readiness, you touch on it in the book, and it's we're suckers and you know athletes, data driven, yeah. always looking for the next new device and the uh-huh. next wearable. And there's wearables all the oh, yeah. all over the place now, and looking for that one metric that lets you know that it's good to go or you're not good to go, yeah. things like that. And did you find anything out along those lines as far as are things? Are other things more accurate than some others? or Yeah. So I have a whole chapter of the book. It's called The Magic Metric that is all about this. So basically this search for the, the magic metric that will tell you whether you recovered or not. And, you know, there's an idea. And, I, you know, I think going into this, I really shared it. Like there must be something, you know, some physiological measure we can take that will tell you, like, everything about recovery. Um, but what's interesting, and I, I should preface this by saying that I am a total data geek. Yeah, I work for a data journalism news site, you know, I am all about statistics and whatever. So like it's I have no aversity to to data. Um, But what I found researching this book is that there isn't any one physiological measure. And in fact, there's nothing that really even comes close to the one thing that does seem to be most powerful. And that is mood state and sort of the answer to a really basic question, which is, how are you feeling? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so um, my husband is actually a ski coach at Colorado Mesa University, and he likes to ask his athletes, you know, on a daily basis, how are you feeling? You know, how are you responding? You know, we worked, we did this workout yesterday. How do you feel now? And he tells me that that answer is really the most important thing that goes into his decisions about, you know, how to, to do the next day's training and what kind of plan to put the athlete on, that that's really the thing that you need to pay attention to. And um, what's been really interesting, there have been several sort of meta-analyses to where they take 
all of the published studies and look at them and looking at these metrics. And there was one done by some researchers in Australia that actually found that all, and they looked at everything. I mean, it was like any kind of marker in the blood you can think of, all sorts of, you know, heart rate, heart rate variability, things like this, but nothing even came close to trumping mood and just that, how do you feel? There's actually a little, it's called measure of mood states or something like that. It's, it's in the book. This is described. But it's just a simple questionnaire asking people, you know, do you feel depressed? Do you feel upbeat? Do you, you know, that mood is a really powerful determinant. That's really interesting. And, and maybe this would be a question more for your husband. Uh-huh. But I'm curious if, like, where's that line between being too sympathetic to that for an, for an athlete? Like, are there times when you do need to push through and kind of get on with it? And other times, because of an athlete, if every day yeah. they're not feeling great, then they're right. never training either, you know, right. or it's always easy. So and I- Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, so part of this, like for him as a coach, I think it's him getting to know the athlete and knowing, you know, so there's, you know, maybe one particular athlete is always going to say, yeah, coach, I feel great. And he's like, I can see that you don't feel great. I mean, and I think it's interesting as a coach, one of the most important things you can do is learn to read your athletes and build a relationship. And you really need to build a relationship of trust with them, right? And in fact, I think um, even when it comes to recovery with the athlete themselves, having this trust and this confidence, you know, the most important thing you can have on the starting line is confidence in where you're at and this feeling of being prepared. And I think, you know, your relationship with your coach really goes into this. And so you need to trust that whatever your coach is telling you to do is, is the best thing for you. And so I think a lot of that is build, building, you know, relationship. But it is true. And, you know, in some of these mood state quizzes and things like this, you sort of follow people and you you see what that particular person's baseline is. So for one person, the baseline may be a three, someone else maybe a five or something. I'm making these numbers up. But, you know, really sort of tracking and and looking because it's the changes, too. And it's interesting. Um, Neil Henderson is a coach who's in the book. And I just did an event with him the other night and we were talking about this. And uh, he has an interesting approach to this, too. He will often sort of try to build a little bit of a relationship with his athlete's spouse or uh, if they have a uh, roommate. And he, yeah. t- he told me a story um, about one athlete he had whose wife was just complaining that he was really moody and terrible to be around. And he said, okay, you know, now I know you're over, you know, we need to back off. So sometimes, you know, even if the athlete isn't willing to, you know, accept this, there may be someone in their life who, who is noticing and telling them. Yeah, that's a, that brings up a really interesting problem that I've encountered in the past where there there's some athlete because athletes are super motivated oh yeah to a fault and, and, I, and I think you kind of alluded that to yourself that you're you're also very kind of one of those athletes that keeps on training almost to a detriment at times yeah. and so I've had athletes in the past where they they know what you're looking for and yeah. so then they just lie basically because yeah. they don't want you to change their workout or to give mm-hmm. them a day off yeah and so I, I like the idea of enlisting a help of a third party. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really great approach. And I also think that, you know, as an athlete, you just need to realize, like, don't lie to your coach. Your coach is actually working for you. Like, they're, you, you don't need to impress your coach. You need to, like, be honest. And your coach is the person who's going to work with you to exploit your your strengths and work on your weaknesses. And so you should not be hiding your weaknesses from your coach. I mean, you want your coach to see those so that you can figure out what to do about them. Going back to the algorithms and, and mm-hmm. these metrics, um, you said that you, you've you used training peaks and you've used some of the training stress score stuff. And I'm just curious, what is your opinion of that? When you were doing research, did you find that to be useful or did you kind of toss it in with the rest? Yeah. And the rubbish no, I did. And in fact, I, in the book, I talk about this. It's one of the few things that I found to be very useful. And the reason I think I liked it so much is 
So the sport that I'm sort of most accomplished in and sort of done the most with is Nordic skiing. And that's something you can't do year round, obviously. And so in the summer and in the off season, and even during the season, I, I tend to do a variety of things. So I'm not skiing every day. And there's not just one activity, you know, versus when I was a cyclist, then I'm basically just riding my bike all the time. But so what ends up happening is I'm running and I'm cycling and I'm roller skiing or I'm doing different things, spending some time in the weight room. Well, how do you quantify that? And how do you look at like training loads? So training loads are really important thing to be thinking about when you're thinking about recovery and and figuring out you know how much rest you need and all of this and so what I found is that the Training Peaks software was really helpful for that because it's the is it the Trimps is that what it's called it, it was based on Trimps but we call it Training Stress Score or the perform, Performance Management Chart yeah. yeah so that that stress score I found extremely useful because I could look at it, you know, it would take whatever I was doing and give me a score that was reasonable. And I found that, you know, there are other recovery metrics that I was using. So I, I tried out a bunch of sports watches and many of these companies now will have a recovery score. And I found that most of those were pretty useless. I mean, they would either tell me what I already knew where it felt like it wasn't giving me additional information or, you know, the times where it really stood out, it was times when it was wrong, where I thought that wasn't a hard workout or, or that was really hard and you're telling me it was easy, things like that. Um, whereas a stress score really was something that felt like it tracked with what I was feeling and it was something I really liked the way um, there's a way to sort of graph it and so I could kind of eyeball it and see. And that was a really useful thing for me. Before we started recording, you had mentioned one of the discoveries you made was that exercising is almost prehab. Yes. In yes. In, you know, in in preventing injury. Yeah. Um, and so, can you speak a little bit about that and how that yeah. relates to that training? Sure. Order? So it's interesting. I talk in the book about this researcher who's actually sort of arguing that we shouldn't um, call them overuse injuries. We should call them training errors. So basically, the idea is this: at very low levels of exercise, you're sort of prone to injury and. and illness and all of that, and at very, very high levels too. But at some point, you know, as you are exercising more, that actually becomes protective of injury and things like this. But the key here is that you want to increase your training load in a steady fashion. The thing that's really, really bad for injury and for illness and all of these things and to sort of wreck your recovery is whenever you have a spike in training load. So you want to avoid those spikes. And of course, you know, if you're training hard, there are going to be times when you're doing more or less training. But what you don't want are these like huge fluctuations because that's where the injuries happen. Yeah. And I'm smiling right now because <laughs> I'm just thinking about a lot of athletes, like especially time crunched athletes. Yeah. And especially myself, I'm guilty of this because I travel a ton. And so a lot of what our training schedule might look like is during the week, you're barely doing anything. And then it's a nice day on the weekend here yeah. in Colorado. And so you just go ride as many miles as you can mm. and you're crushed for the next week yeah. until you do it again the next week. And yeah, so, so maybe that's not the most optimal way to train. Right. It's not. But the other thing is like coming up with something that works for you. So it may be that, you know, the bulk of your training is on weekends, but then you're making sure that, you know, instead of doing, you know, a six hour ride, you, you build up to that, you know, in between. And the other, I think, really important concept is that you're really only benefiting from training that you're recovering from. And you don't, like, I think we tend to look at this completely backwards where you want to do as much training as you can. It's like, no, you actually want to do the minimum training you can to get the benefit you're looking for. And that should be the goal. And you don't even want to get close to going over the line. Right. Yeah. And that, that's uh, Joe Frill is one of the founders of Training Peaks. Uh -huh. And in his book, um, The Triathlete Training Bible, that's always something that stuck with me is that you want to do the least amount of training that brings about positive that's right. Change. Absolutely you know? correct. Yeah. And it's a it's a great uh, takeaway there. Yeah. So before we move on to this, I just uh, there's something that I found 
surprising in the book. And you talked about float tanks. And yeah. I, I wasn't even really familiar <laughs> with it. And then I started reading more about it. And it's uh, deprivation chambers, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And you found that those were actually really beneficial for recovery, which I yeah. found crazy. And so what is behind that? Yeah, sure. So I'll just start off by saying these things used to be called sensory deprivation chambers. And then they start, this is part of the marketing right now. They've been rebranded as float tanks. We have several in Boulder because I Googled. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I went off. So Steph Curry, the Golden State Warriors, is actually a big fan of this. And that was where I first heard about it. And so I decided to go to this place that, that Curry was using in San Francisco. And, you know, I really was doing this just in service of the book. And, you know, sometimes as a journalist, you have to do things you don't want to do because it's part of, and I was really looking at it like, oh, this is going to be terrible. And I just, I mean, I really didn't think I was going to make it the full hour, but I got in there and it was so pleasant. Um, so this one that I did in San Francisco, there are different variations of the chamber, but basically you are in a small, dark and quiet place. The water is body temperature, so it's neither hot nor cold. It's extremely salty. So you're just, your body's very buoyant. And what I found is it was just an incredible way to let go of stress, both physical and emotional, you know, psychological. Um, and really what I think of it as, as forced meditation. And, uh, I know that meditation can be beneficial. I'm not very good at it. I tend to have trouble sort of quieting my mind. And so, and I found, and it's interesting, since then I've told a lot of people about this and I found that people that are sort of like monkey minds like me really seem to benefit from this. It's like, I know I should meditate, but I'm having trouble doing it. And so it's a way of forced meditation. But I think what this gets to is a really important concept. I mean, it's so important. I have a whole chapter in the book about it which is about sort of the psychological side of of recovery, which is just as important as the physical side. And, you know, to your body, stress is stress, whether it's the physical stress of a, a workout or, you know, the things that we normally just call, you know, generic stress, emotional, you know, whether it's stuff going on at home, your stressful job, whatever it is. But those things are just as stressful to your body as your training. And so if you're telling yourself, oh, yeah, I'm taking a rest day, but you're dealing with a really difficult situation at work, or you're running around, you know, doing stressful errands or whatever it is, like you're actually not resting. And so I think uh, the, the big concept to think about here is just that you need to find a way to relax the mind as well as the body and that that's a crucial part of the recovery process. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And and definitely like I laugh when you say monkey mind because yeah. I definitely put myself in that category as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I just love that description of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you you just wrote an article recently mm-hmm. on 538 the Super Bowl just happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> And and unfortunately, the uh, Patriots won again. (laughs) And Tom Brady had a big hand in that. And so in the book, you talk a little bit about his pajamas. But then this article just came out as well regarding Tom Brady's pajamas. Can can you just speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So going back to like things you do in the service of journalism, um, when Tom Brady's book came out, his sort of health and wellness book, I read it and sort of reviewed it or, or wrote about it for 538. And I think the headline was something like, Tom Brady is drowning in his own pseudoscience. <laughs> um, he has some really unscientific ideas in there. For instance, the idea that he's so hydrated that he doesn't need sunscreen, that somehow <laughs> drinking a ton of water will protect him from sunburn, which of course is 
just ridiculous. You don't need a science degree to know that. <laughs> um, but one of the things, so it was really interesting. In the book, I describe um, he's also, he has these pajamas from Under Armour that are supposed to be use infrared radiation technology to help you sleep better. And um, I'll just cut to the chase, which is all of this stuff about infrared radiation. Infrared radiation, if you remember from your physics class, is just a type of heat. It's a type, you know, we, we experience this as heat. And so basically they're pajamas that are sort of warm and, you know, which may or may not be comfortable to you. But what's so interesting about this is that sleep is actually the most potent recovery method there is. I mean, hands down, like there's nothing else that comes even close. So like Tom Brady is absolutely correct to prioritize sleep and to think that sleep is a really important part of recovery. Yeah, but of course, here we have this attempt to monetize it. And all of a sudden, sleep is not something that you just do in bed every night. It's like this thing that has to become a product and, you know, all of these things that you need to buy, you need to get just right. And so we're, we're almost sort of taking the most basic, simple things and making them so complicated that, uh, you know, become, it can almost become its own source of stress. Right. I love that you just said that because it goes back to where we started. And yeah. it's like, it almost seems like if it's simple, then it can't work. And that reminds me of what I was going to talk about earlier is that one of the things you were talking about the uh, ice baths and yeah. stuff like that. And is there's this effect that if it, if it's painful or if it seems really dramatic that yeah. people believe in it more. That's right. Where That's if you're right. not like, if it doesn't hurt, then it must not work kind right. of thing. And so. Right. That's absolutely true. And I have a whole chapter again on placebos and this is, Completely correct. There's good evidence that uh, placebo shots are more effective than placebo pills. Like anything, <laughs> anything that's like painful must work. I actually wrote a story for 538. Um, this isn't in the book, but about placebo surgery and the, the effect of placebo um, in surgeries. And if you think about it, you know, you have this whole ritual and you have this healer that comes and is taking care of you. Right. And surgery is so ritualistic. But it turns out that a lot of the orthopedic surgeries that we do seem to actually be working by uh, placebo effect. And when they've done studies where they've done sham surgeries, so if you have a torn meniscus and you get a sham surgery, you do just as well as if you have the real surgery. It's fascinating. That is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, But I don't think that we should be dismissive of the placebo effect. So this is another thing. So in the book, I actually talk about an MBA team that's that's sort of doing this in a really interesting way. So one of their trainers basically offers the players, um, you know, this buffet of recovery items that they can do. And he says, you know, these may or may not work. We're not sure. You know, some people find that they're helpful. And you should choose the thing that you want to do and go ahead and do it. And so this is kind of like in medicine, this is called an open placebo where you're saying, you know, we don't really know this works, but we think it might. Right. And like, I'm here to help you a little bit. And you know, so much of this is bedside manner too with people. But um, going back to the placebo effect and what makes a placebo work, it turns out that if you choose the placebo, that that works better than if someone else gives it to you. And really? so, yeah, so it's fascinating. So giving the athlete a choice and like allowing them to choose something that is somehow appealing to them or that they have a belief in for whatever reason, if it's that they want icing because it really hurts and they like that and that feels like, oh, it must be really right. working. Um, you know, personally, I love massage because it feels really good. There are a lot of sort of scientific reasons that are given for massage that it turns out don't really pan out. But here's the thing that I think is really worth keeping in mind, and that is what makes massage so great, I think, is that you're taking an hour to just 
be sacked out. You're lying down. You know, you're lying down. You're relaxing. You're not on your phone. You're, you know, it's time out from all of this stress and other things. Right. And at its most basic level, that's what recovery is. So anything that helps you relax, that's working. You don't need some pseudoscientific blah, blah, blah to tell you that it's going to work. Like it really is that simple. That is awesome. And there's so many other great things in the book, and I wish we could go buy them like line by line. But <laughs> Go buy uh, the book. <laughs> exactly. And, and when does it yeah. come out? Is it out now? It came out yesterday. It yeah. did. It came yeah. out yesterday. Perfect. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, how timely. So I would highly recommend that you go get Good to Go, what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. It really is just full of so much good information. And before I let you go, I'm just curious, where do you see the future heading with wearables, things like that? Is there is there anything you see as far as recovery five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the current trends you're seeing? Yeah, so what I see, and this is something that I see as a data journalist, I'm always getting pitched ideas, you know, products and things that are using data. And we're sort of in this age where we have the ability to collect so much data. But you can get into this situation that I've heard called data obesity. And I really like that term because basically the idea is you can collect all this data, but data is really only useful if it's telling you something, if it's changing. So as an athlete, the only data that's useful to me is something that's going to change what I'm doing. So if I'm getting data that's just like telling me something that I'm already doing, like, you know, for instance, when my recovery score says, yeah, that was a hard workout. Well, I already knew that. I don't need my watch to tell me. And in fact, I think that that's a dangerous situation because I've talked to coaches that have really run into problems when they have athletes that have become so fixated on their data that they've lost the ability to read their own bodies and they're trusting the sports watch over their own body and their own sensation of how they're feeling. In fact, I have a story in the book about uh, an athlete who ended up going to sleep lab because even though she was sleeping fine, her watch was telling her that she wasn't, and she was convinced that she wasn't sleeping. And she goes in there, and even after going to the sleep lab, they're like, you're fine. Um, she didn't believe it because you know she had really chosen to believe the data over right. her own sense of well-being. And so, yeah, I think in the end, the most important thing that an athlete can develop is this sense of reading their body and understanding what it's telling them. Yeah. But going back to the data, I would just say that I think that we're in a a time right now where we're just collecting all this data, but we don't really know what to do with it. And I think that a lot of the stuff is just going to fall away. I don't think that the numbers are always better than that, you know, being able to read your body. I mean, it's sort of like their gene test now that you can take to figure out if you're a sprinter or an endurance runner. And it's like, you don't need a gene test. You need a stopwatch. Like, go run on the track and I can tell you whether, yeah. you know, which kind of athlete you are. You don't need to know, you don't need a genotype on your muscle fiber. Well, and going back to what you were saying, like if it's not going to change what you're doing, if if my yeah. lifelong dream is to be a sprinter, yeah, is it you know, and it tells me that I'm not cut out for that. Am I going to give up on it right then? Yeah, or, you know, I think a lot of at the end of the day, mostly most of the coaches listening to this are coaching athletes that train and race for fun. Yeah, and so is information like that going to change? what you're doing and right. probably not probably not yeah, yeah. that's yeah, so. a great point so last thing before i let uh-huh. you go is do you have any recommended reading or podcast or anything that can go more into recovery or other things that might be of use to the listeners so it's not about recovery but i really like uh alex hutchinson's book endure i don't know if you've had him on the podcast but he's be... future yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's a fantastic book just about sort of all the science of training and endurance sport that's really good. Um, there's a new book coming out 
and if, I'm not exactly sure in a few months, Steve Magnus and Brad Solberg, uh, The Passion Paradox, which I think would be a great book for coaches. It's kind of talking. So it's basically talking about this conundrum where you have people that you know, become so passionate about something that, you know, how do you sort of manage that drive versus, you know, the, the passion that you have for something to also find, you know, the stillness that you need to recover and balancing things and all of that. Well, actually, um, Alex Hutchinson will be one of our keynotes at the Endurance Coaching Summit in September in Boulder. So, oh, fantastic. So, yeah, I plan on having, having him on, but I'll keep an eye out for the Excellent. Steve Magnus book. I'm yeah. a big fan of his as well. Yeah, so, he's great. Yeah. He's in the book in a couple of places, and I talk about some of his athletes, and he's a good guy. Very cool. Well, thank you very much. And as we said, go pick up Good to Go. Um, It's a fantastic book. So much more information in there. And Christy, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks. Hey, guys. Dave Shelley here again. I hope you enjoyed our talk with Christy. Like I said, definitely go out and pick up Good to Go. There's a ton more information in there that your athletes will benefit from. Until next time, 